this morning, Dave Kaposha is going to be preaching, and uh, he is our, if you don't know who he is, he is our young seminary student, and, uh, and he's going to be preaching. He's going to Master Seminary in California, and uh, so he's been, how long you got left, Dave? Two more years left, and so when he comes back, we've got to put him to work. That's just the bottom line. And so, so uh, actually, him and Emma came here in our college ministry from Rutgers. Uh, they met here. They were married here. Dave started working here, and then he had a sense of call to ministry here. And uh, he knew one thing he didn't want to do. He didn't want to teach in a Christian school anymore. And... Uh, so the Lord is, is developing him, molding and shaping him and Emma uh, in, uh, just in the, under the Word of God and, and through other means. And so uh, he's been, of course, the little guy on the screen in our Sunday school, and now he's in person. So I'd, I'd like to welcome Dave to uh, the pulpit this morning. And take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 55, right? Isaiah 55, and we'll get right into it, Okay. Well, thank you, Pastor. It's a joy to be here, but it's always sobering because what we have before us is the Word of God. God speaks to us. I'm so glad that last song was played. That's my favorite Christmas carol because it reminds us of the, yeah, it's joyful at Christmas time, but do you realize what's happened? This is God in the flesh. We're going to see a little bit related even to that in our passage today. Let's pray before we continue. God, this salvation is so great. Jesus, you are so wonderful. Who is able even to articulate these things adequately? Oh, God, I pray that you would open our minds to your word today. Open my mouth to be able to explain it well and as it ought to be explained. These truths are too great to be spoken in a way that is not showing that greatness. So, God, help me. Help the people to take in this word, to be so moved by what a great salvation they have that they are not disturbed, not disturbed whatever life throws at them. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned Christmas carols. I don't know if you like Christmas carols or not, but certainly you're subjected to them at this time of year. Probably recently you've heard one Christmas carol called Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I don't know if you like it or not. The song has always struck me as very odd because beneath the surface of the song, which seems to celebrate or to suggest you should celebrate your present happiness in the holiday season, there's a striking melancholy undertone. Twice the song mentions troubles. It says, Now our troubles will be out of sight. At Christmas time, our troubles will be miles away. But by even mentioning troubles, they're not miles away at all. They're actually brought back to mind in the song. And they tell you that, yeah, at Christmas time, you might be able to enjoy yourself, but your troubles are still there. And in fact, Christmas time may make your troubles weigh on you much more heavily because you're supposed to be celebrating, but all you remember is your troubles. And there's even another line in the song that says, I know we'll always be together if the fates allow. Well, that's also kind of depressing. It means there's no guarantee that your family is going to be able to celebrate together in the future. You're at the mercy of forces totally beyond your control. Merry Christmas. <laughs> the song has always stuck out to me because of that tone. Have you got troubles at this time of year? Our nation certainly has troubles. Consider this past year, things even happening, still going on right now, natural disasters, political divide and instability, threats from Russia, China, North Korea, terrorist attacks, mass shootings, racial tensions, violence, just to name a few. What about you personally? You've got troubles in your life, you, for your health, troubles with your family, 
troubles with your relationships with other people, experiencing persecution, trouble with your job, trouble with your school, trouble with your finances, trouble in your struggle against sin, trouble with the death of a loved one, just generally wondering how you're going to make it in the future. Maybe you're also coming to grips with your own mortality. You know you're going to die. And you know you're going to meet God. These are sober realities. They are indeed troubles. So what gives you hope? What gives you hope in those things? Real hope. Real strength. Not just something that you can cover over with a Christmas carol. You're right, Carol. We're going to learn more about the hope that is Jesus from the word in the Old Testament today. Because God spoke a timely word to people in trouble. He spoke it to the people of Judah by the prophet Isaiah during ancient days. But that word given to them is a timely word for us as well. It's the same word that we need to hear as we go through troubles and as we look for hope. It is a word of peace and joy. It is a simple word. It is yet a profound word. What is that message? What is that word? It's simply this. Trust your wonder-working God. Trust your wonder-working God. You can, even looking to this new year, considering all the troubles you've been through or still going through, trust your wonder-working God. And we're going to look at that message as it's developed in Isaiah 55 today. So it's probably already there. It's page 738 if you're using the Pew Bible. If you haven't turned there, Isaiah is right after the wisdom books, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, right before Jeremiah. We're late in the book, though, in Isaiah chapter 55. There's a whole lot that's come before this. So that means before we can read the text, we need some context. We need the historical and literary background. So let's talk about the historical aspect first. If you hold your place in Isaiah 55, turn over to Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, 1. And we'll see just where in redemptive history we are. First verse gives us us where we are in history. Isaiah 1, 1. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. What does this tell us? It tells us we're in the divided kingdom period. Remember how the kingdom divided? It was one under Saul, David, Solomon, but then it divided under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And then you had two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel, ten and a half tribes, and the southern kingdom called Judah, one and a half tribes. They existed together for a couple centuries. We're in that period, kind of late in that period, or later. Isaiah's ministry to Judah spanned from approximately 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. What was Judah experiencing during this time, during Isaiah's days? There are four items I want you to note, four important pieces of background. Number one, Judah has mostly good kings. Of the four that are mentioned at the beginning of Isaiah, Three of them are good. Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, they all get a good report in the Bible. One of them, extremely bad, Ahaz. He was Hezekiah's father. Idolatrous, led Judah into idolatry. And one king not mentioned, Hezekiah's son, also really bad, Manasseh. But mostly good kings. None of these good kings, Judah experienced prosperity. And on the surface, the people were religious, worshiping God, and obedient. So, number one, mostly good kings. Number two, though, also to note, despite appearances, Judah was desperately in need of true faith and repentance. You see, though the surface looked good, Isaiah, the book itself, shows us what Judah was really like. Look down, actually, if you're still in Isaiah 1, look down to verse 10. We get, I just want to show you two characterizations of the people of Judah from God via the prophet Isaiah. Look at what God says the people of Judah are like in Isaiah 1, 10 to 15. God says, or the word says, you're going to see what God says, hear the word of the Lord. 
that is Yahweh. I'm going to say Yahweh. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Hypocritical worship. The society was actually full of injustice and even idolatry. Look now towards the end of Isaiah. Isaiah 57. We will get back to 55 eventually. I'm telling you the truth. But Isaiah 57, verses 3 to 6, hear another characterization of the people from God. Isaiah 57, verses 3 to 6. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion? Offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves among the oaks, under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines, under the clefts of the crags. Among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Judah may have had good kings and may have looked religious on the surface, but they were an unjust society, full of hypocrisy and also worship of idols. We've got to remember that. Number three, another background item to remember, Judah is under increasing military threat during Isaiah's days. Judah is under increasing military threat. You see, during the reign of these four kings, the brutal empire of Assyria was rising like a dark storm cloud on the horizon. Already it had swallowed up all its neighbors, Assyria's neighbors, was encroaching closer and closer to Palestine and Palestine's neighbors. What were Judah and its kings supposed to do to avoid being subjugated by Assyria, being swallowed up by this empire? They did have some options. They could seek alliances with other kingdoms. The idea is strength in numbers. We're all small by ourselves, but together we might be able to oppose the Assyrian juggernaut. Or maybe just side with Assyria. Accept Assyrian dominance and influence. If you can't beat them, join them. That's an option. We could seek the favor of various gods. After all, the gods of the other nations are said to be powerful, give the things we might need to oppose Assyria and remain prosperous, and they have pleasurable rights as well. We can still serve Yahweh, but let's cover the bases. Get those other gods on our side too. And another option was to just seek and trust Yahweh exclusively. But which one would really save Israel and Judah? And which one would save Judah? There was this pressure because of this increasing military threat. This we need to remember for the book of Isaiah. And number four, this goes along with it, Judah saw the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now this is a big deal. I don't want you to think of that just like historical trivia. Oh yeah, Samaria fell in 722. That is a huge deal. Yes, Assyria came, invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, conquered its capital city, Samaria, slaughtered most of the inhabitants, and then took the rest into exile. That has not happened since Israel first came into the land. 700 years earlier, 1410 B.C., approximately, when Joshua and Israelites came with them, they inhabited the land and they never were taken away from it, at least not wholly. But now, Ten and a half tribes, gone. Gone from the land that God promised them. What is happening? This must have felt like the end of the world to Judah. Has God abandoned us? 
Has God finally become unfaithful? Or is it we who have been unfaithful to God? Is the covenant over? The special covenant that God gave to Israel? That special special agreement of blessing and also cursing? And are we next? Are we to be obliterated next? To the faithful, those who actually followed Yahweh, and the unfaithful in Judah, this development brought severe trouble and anxiety. All of these things we need to keep in mind. Indeed, they had good kings, not all good kings, but they were wicked beneath the surface. They're under increasing military threat, and they've already seen their neighbor, their kinsmen, destroyed and taken into exile. Do we have troubles today? They had troubles too. But did God leave Judah in this desperate state, this despair and anxiety? He didn't. He sent a gracious, or in his grace, he sent a messenger. He sent Isaiah. Really, it's Judah's anxieties about what was happening and what would happen in the future that gives us the 66 chapters of prophecy we know as as Isaiah. In Isaiah, God speaks to his people and he says, I know you're worried. I know you're despairing about what's going to happen in the future. But let me tell you what's going to happen. And let me tell you why, when it all comes to pass, you can trust me. You can trust your God because I'm going to work wonders. When we consider the book of Isaiah as a whole, we can see certain divisions. There's an introductory section. I would say the introduction is chapters 1 to 6. And then there are two main parts. The first part, chapters 7 to 35. And then the second part, chapters 36 to 66. At the beginning of each of these main parts, there's a king who faces a decision. He's tested with a threat, and he has to decide whether he's going to trust God or not. In the first part of Isaiah, it's King Ahaz, the wicked king of Judah. He's being invaded. Judah's being invaded under King Ahaz. Jerusalem's about to be besieged. God gives him a promise, and he says, trust me. What does Ahaz do? He doesn't trust God. He instead makes an alliance with Assyria, and he subjects Judah to Assyria's domination. But in the second half, we see another king tested. This time it's Hezekiah, righteous Hezekiah. He also faces a similar threat. Judah's being invaded. Jerusalem's about to be besieged. What are you going to do, Hezekiah? He decides he's going to trust God. And what does God do? Delivers him spectacularly. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are killed, and the invaders flee. These set up the two main sections of Isaiah. And then each of these sections, they, they have a particular focus in relating God's message about the future to his people. In the first section, chapters 7 to 31, 7 to 35, it's an explanation of what God is going to do. What exactly is God going to accomplish in the future? Well, what are, what are the things God's going to accomplish? I have to give it to you in summary form because we don't have time to trace out all of them. But they include the following. Judah is going to be judged. Judah will be judged for its sin and idolatry. God has to. And Judah will go into exile by the nation of Babylon. But Judah and Israel will also be restored from exile. More than that, Judah and Israel will be forgiven of their sins and made holy. Also, Judah and Israel's enemies will be completely destroyed, and God's kingdom of prosperity will be established on the earth. Those are huge promises. But how could that be possible? I mean, consider Judah, Judah's state and Israel's state before they were destroyed. Totally wicked, totally idolatrous. How can this people be forgiven, restored, made holy, avenged, and made to prosper? Ah, that's what the second half of Isaiah focuses on. The first half is what God's going to do, focusing on that. The second half is how is God going to bring it to pass? How is God going to bring about these things that he's promised in the first half? And there are three particular means that God articulates, emphasizes in the second half of Isaiah. The first is, God's going to accomplish it by his powerful command. By his powerful command. Chapters 40 to 48, 
we see God related as the creator whose mere declared word is powerful. Unlike the false gods and idols who can't proclaim anything beforehand before it happens, and they can't actually do anything, they can't make anything happen, God tells you what's going to happen beforehand, and then he makes it happen. That's the power of his word. After all, his word made the world. He commanded, and it was there. And his word sustains the world. He commands, and it abides. How is this all going to happen? God's command will make it happen. His word is effective. But there's another way it's going to happen. It's going to happen through God's suffering servant. These promises are going to come to pass through the servant that God's going to send. And we see this particularly emphasized in chapters 49 to 54 of Isaiah, right before our chapter. The servant and the coming one, the promised one, is mentioned in previous chapters of Isaiah, but especially discussed in those in chapters 49 to 54. And this servant is said to come and redeem his people by suffering in their place and obtaining for them forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. So it's going to happen through God's word, through his command. It's going to happen through God's servant. And it's also going to happen with God coming down himself as the conqueror, as the king. And this is what the last part of Isaiah talks about. Isaiah 60 to 66. We see that emphasized. God himself comes down, establishes his kingdom, makes his robe red with the blood of his enemies, and destroys them. And then he reigns himself on a curse-reversed earth with his people. That's how God's going to bring it about. But what about chapters 55 to 59? If you're paying close attention, I skipped over those numbers. But they appear right between those two sections about the servant and the conquering king. And it's something like an application section. Based on what God's going to do and how he's going to do it, God makes an invitation. An invitation to his people to turn to him and trust. 55 is specifically that invitation. The chapters that follow, they talk about the injustices in Judah and how those things need to be changed. But 55 is the particular invitation. Now, I know that's a lot of background. You're like, whoa, I didn't know I was going to learn all about the book of Isaiah today. Well, there you go. You did. It's important that we have all this background, though, if we're going to appreciate and understand what God says in Isaiah 55. So now, let's go back to Isaiah 55 and read our text. Originally, I was going to go through all 13 verses. I will say something about the second half of this at the end, but we're just going to talk about verses 1 to 7. So Isaiah 55, 1 to 7. God speaking. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In this passage, really all of it, but particularly I'm going to focus on the first half, our wonder-working God presents three astonishing appeals to come and trust him. In the latter part of the passage, he gives three arresting reasons why we ought to trust him. And I'll just preview those at the end. But we're going to focus on the first half. Why does he give us these things? So that his people, and so that you, you here sitting today, might turn to him and trust him with everything. Now, why do I say that these three appeals, the first half of this chapter, are astonishing? They are astonishing in that God speaks to a sinful, idolatrous, hypocritical people with such generous, hope-giving love. Now, we're going to see that as we investigate each one of these appeals, moving verse by verse. 
the first appeal God gives to his people is to come to the God who gives generously. Come to the God who gives generously. We see this in verses 1 to 2. I'll read that again. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Now there's a very surprising idea in these first two verses. We're presented the picture, as it were, of going to market. And at this market, God himself has come and is selling something and competing with the other vendors. Now, who are the other vendors? Well, they're anyone who competes with God. Anything that competes for the people's devotion, for the people's trust, for the people's security, for the people's satisfaction. God has come to the market to compete with those people. Truly, there is no competition with God. But Judah, as it were, is shopping around, trying to find if maybe there's another option to add or to replace God with. God has been showing the uselessness of false gods and idols since chapter 40 of Isaiah. But he returns to that theme again to show the people of Judah that he's come to the market with a deal that no sane shopper would refuse. Ho, God announces in verse 1, come to me and have all your needs totally satisfied. I've got water for the thirsty, food for the hungry. Water, food, those are our basic life needs, right? Without these, we die. God says, I've got it. I've got everything you need for life. Come buy from me. Notice the appearance also of wine and milk in verse 1. Wine and milk go beyond life's needs, though they were relatively common in ancient times. Still, they are a step above the basics. When you're dying of thirst, you don't call for milk. You don't call for wine. You call for water. God says, I've got water, abundant water for you, but I also have wine and milk. See, wine and milk are, they have a connotation of luxury, prosperity, and even delight. We see these two terms appear actually in the Song of Songs. In chapter 5, verse 1, when the husband is describing the delight of his wife, he says, I have drunk my wine and I have drunk my milk. Those are words that connote delight. And in Joel, chapter 3, verse 18, we're describing the future state of Israel when God has brought just such huge prosperity on them. He says that the land is dripping with wine and milk. So what is God saying? He's calling out to those in the market saying, Come to me for more than the bare minimum. Drink even wine and milk from me. But notice for whom God seeks as customers. God wants the bankrupt. Verse 1 is emphatic about this. He says, those of you who thirst, who don't have water, come to me. And twice he says, I want the people who have no money. And he even says, you're coming to obtain your fill without cost. There's no price. What? What kind of seller goes to market and charges nothing for his goods? That person is either senseless, out of his mind, or he's so powerful and generous that money is no object. Which is it with God? It's the latter. God doesn't need anything from anybody. doesn't need anything from the people of Judah. doesn't need anything from you. He already owns it all. He's the creator. He's already satisfied with himself. He's self-sufficient. He made you. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need your good works. You need what he has. And he's glad to give it to you. If you will come. If you try to obtain something from God by earning it, however, that is an offense to him. That suggests that God lacks something. Or that somehow you deserve glory for something. And he's the one who deserves all glory. He will not abide any such transaction in which you try to come earning. Rather, his demand is, if you wish to buy from me, come with nothing but faith. And I will give you all. Consider how different this offer is from those of all idols 
and false gods who require so much of those who come to them. If it's true back then, then it's true today. For a false god, you've got to earn its blessing. You've got to recite prayers. You've got to present food and drink offerings. You've got to make little statues of them or keep those statues clean and unprofane and in the right place. You've got to perform rituals. You've got to do various works. You might even have to sacrifice your own children. Just so maybe the gods will give you what you want. You don't know. They're kind of moody, though. Verse 2, God points out the senselessness of any such transaction with idols. It's doubly senseless. First of all, he says, why do you spend money when I'm giving you it all for free? And two, why do you spend money for that which is not even real? Notice God says, you buy from them what is not bread. It's not real food. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give life. It may have the appearance of food, but it's not food. It's like God is offering a fresh, freshly baked loaf of bread for free, while the idols, these competitors, are offering plastic loaves. Even if you manage to cut up that plastic loaf and somehow swallow it, it's not going to give you any life. It's not going to give you any nourishment. It's just going to give you a lot of problems. But isn't this the way with idols? Isn't this what they always do? Isn't this their most cruel and evil aspect? They demand, they take from you, but they do not give. No matter how much you work for them, give for them, sacrifice for them, they can't give you what you need. They can't give you life. They can't give you true security. They won't give you lasting satisfaction. Just fleeting enjoyment. My brothers, sisters, my friends here today listening, if you are serving any idol, any lust, any false god in your life, I beg you to give it up. Whatever it is, these days it's not quite so popular to have a statue to bow down to, but we have plenty of other idols. Pride, materialism, even good things can turn into idols. Your family, children, many other things, a relationship, professional success, money, power, sex, beauty, popularity, any god you create of your own mind, any god of any other religious system, even a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Scriptures. Those are idols. They are false gods. And if you look to them for life, security, or salvation, for satisfaction, you'll be disappointed. They are deceptive. They are seductive. But you must cast it away. Run from it. Run from it like a deadly lie. It will rob you and rob you and rob you until it's taken everything. And what will it leave you with at the end? Only regret. And the painful promise that if you had just spent a little more, or worked a little harder, you might have finally received your satisfaction. But God offers a much better deal. Look again at the end of verse 2. He says, eat what is good. I want you to eat what is good. That is, that which is truly good. I want to give you the best. And I don't just want to give you a small amount. He says, delight yourself in abundance. What kind of God offers himself so generously to a people who have insulted him and spurned him? What kind of God? I'll tell you. A God who's way better than you or I have ever conceived. Come to such a God. Trust in such a God. Now, is God promising literal food, drink, milk, wine, etc.? Or are these just figures? Well, there is a literal element to this. Israel and Judah were part of the Mosaic Covenant, as I mentioned, and that covenant had literal promises to it. When they were brought into the land, God says, you follow after me. This land is going to produce such prosperity for you. You're going to have such amazing food. You're going to have all this wine. You're going to have all this 
materials being produced from the land. You can have so much. You can't even gather it all in by the time it needs to be gathered and you need to plant the next set of crops. So there was a literal aspect for them, but we're not part of the Mosaic Covenant. It's not guaranteed to us. Though, we do have promises in the New Testament that tell us our Father will, in a similar manner, perfectly provide for all our needs. And not just provide, but even pleasantly do so. Listen to what Matthew says, rather what Jesus says in the book of Matthew. Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33. Jesus is teaching the people about not worrying and not valuing the things of the world. And he says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's true, God will even provide for us materially and in, a, and in a satisfying way. But the greater fulfillment of all these promises is spiritual and eternal. Jesus makes this very clear in the New Testament. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You want life, security, and satisfaction? You go to Jesus. John 7, verses 37 to 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Come to God, he gives you his spirit. Same language as used in Isaiah. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the end of the Bible, and the last words given to us, we hear, just one second, please. We hear, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. God does give us, what, give us what we need for our life in this world. But the true life that comes through something that's not mere food and drink, it comes through the Son. He is our real food. He is our real life. We are grateful for the physical provisions and pleasures that God gives us, but the greatest provision is God himself. God gives us joy and peace generously today. And he will give it, to a new, give it to us in an even fuller measure when we see him. So this is God's first astonishing appeal. Come to the God who gives generously. Don't shop around. Don't be deceived by worthless idols. Come and enjoy what your God gives freely. Astonishing appeal number two. See this in verses three to five. Listen to the God who saves forever. Listen to the God who saves forever. Let me reread the verses. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of Yahweh your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Important grammar note. Notice the you and your, verse 3. This is a plural you. In English, we use you for both singular and plural. In Hebrew, it was distinguished. So this is a plural you. He's talking to the people of Judah. And by principle, he's talking to us, talking to all of us today. God says in verse 3, incline your ears. And he also says, listen. Two ways of saying the same thing on different lines. This is poetic parallelism. It's repetition for emphasis. God's saying, you really got to listen, take in, take to heart, and believe what I say. What's another word for believing what God says? Faith. Come to God in faith. And what is the result of this faithful listening? You will come to God and live. Those things are really synonymous, made synonymous by the parallelism, by the poetic parallelism. To come to God is to live, just as to incline your ear is to listen. Now, what is it that God offers that's going to bring us life? Well, the third line of verse 3 tells us God offers an everlasting covenant that is an unending commitment from God to you. 
And he says also, this covenant is according to the covenant love shown to David. Faithful mercies, you could also translate that covenant love. What was shown to David? What was this special covenant love given to David? Ah, remember back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 to 17, where David wanted to build a house for the Lord, wanted to build a temple. But God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And he gives David what we call the Davidic covenant. This was a special agreement from God, totally on God's own initiative and God's own guarantee. He says that David's line will always possess the throne of Judah. There will always be someone from his lineage who's, who's ruling. David's seed or descendant would be established on the throne forever, and God would never remove his covenant love from David or from David's seed. So how does this relate to what God is offering in Isaiah 55? This is somewhat difficult to understand. It's not that we will receive our own covenants like David's. We're not guaranteed the descendants on the throne of Judah or anything like that. David's covenant is unique in Scripture. Nor would I say that this is a strict reference to Jeremiah's new covenant. This, is, this everlasting covenant is set in parallel to the particular covenant love shown to David. So I think the way we have to understand this is that we are, what God is offering is an interest in the eternal covenant given to David. We will be made one of the beneficiaries. We will have an interest in the one promised to David. We will have an interest in the seed whose kingdom will be established forever. We will have a part in that eternal kingdom, and we will become eternal beneficiaries of the love shown to David. Now, who is this seed of David? Who will have this kingdom? Well, it's the greater David. It's the one promised, the suffering servant of God who redeems his people, who will return as a conqueror, who will establish God's kingdom on the earth. He is the guarantor of the life that God offers in verse 3. It will come via him. I believe verses 3 to 5 are all about this coming one, the servant, the greater David. Because verses verses 4 and 5 go on to give us descriptions about this coming one. Verse 4 says, him. Now, David was just mentioned, and we might say, oh, this must be referring to David. But the description doesn't fit King David, who died. This is someone greater than David. Indeed, I would say it is the seed of David, the the greater David who was to come. God says of this one in verse 4, behold. Whenever you see behold, that has the idea of vividness. You want to see a picture. See it with your own eyes. Behold, and then we have this interesting verb form in verse 4. In our Bibles, it's present perfect. It does have a a completed sense to it, even though it's talking about something in the future. This is the vividness coming out. God's saying something's going to happen in the future that's so sure and vivid, it's like you can already see it happen. What is it that God says has already been established? He will be a witness. He's going to be one who gives witness or who testifies. I've already established that fact. Testify of what? think in context, God's salvation, God's life, the covenant given to David. And he's going to testify. But to whom is he going to testify? To Judah? That's not what it says. To my people? No. But to whom? It says to the peoples. Plural. Wait a second. God always referred to people of Israel, people of Judah, as one people. So we can't be talking about them. He must be mean. Who must he mean by peoples? He means the Gentiles. He means the non-Jews. God says, I've already established he's going to give testimony to all the peoples of the earth, the Gentiles. I've established him as my witness of salvation to all peoples. In fact, he will be leader and commander for the peoples. They will follow him as part of his hosts. This means that God's not only going to tell about his salvation plan to the Gentiles, but what? They'll be included. They're going to be, they're going to be saved as well. They have a part in God's salvation plan. And this is exactly as verse 5 goes on to say. Now, Another grammar note here, the you of verse 5 is not plural. It's singular. 
So he's no longer talking about the people of Judah. He's talking about one individual. Really, he's just turning to address directly the person he was talking about in verse 4, the greater David, the coming promised one. He addresses him in verse 5, and he says, Behold, again, vividness, wants him to see something. What does he want him to see? You will call a nation you do not know. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know. Hmm, what's this? Before we were talking about peoples, plural. Now it says nation, singular. Are we talking about Israel and Judah now? Well, the coming one is said not to know this nation. He is from the people of Judah and from the people of Israel. How could he not know his own nation? Doesn't seem to fit. Moreover, the next line tells us that the nation doesn't know him. You mean the Jews won't recognize one of their own? Despite this switch back into the singular, I'd say verse 5 is still talking about the Gentiles. They are the ones that Jesus doesn't know. I'm sorry, we'll get to Jesus. The one that the coming one doesn't know, and also that doesn't know him. By the way, this is Paul's view. Romans 10.20, he quotes this verse in reference to the Gentiles. So, whatever the reason he switches into the, Isaiah switches into singular, we know this is talking about the Gentiles. Why the shift? I think it's the idea that God is taking the Gentiles, who are various peoples, and he makes them into one people, makes them into his people. And he will do that through this one, this one who was promised, the one from the seed of David. This one calls for those who do not know him, this nation that does not know him, to come. And what do they do? They not only come, but they run to him. They rush to the life giver, their leader, their commander, their savior, and they follow him as one people. And all this plays out exactly as God has ordained. Notice, a reason is given at In the fifth line of verse 5, he says, because of the Lord. Why is this happening? Why are they rushing to him? Because of the Lord, because of Yahweh, even the Holy One of Israel. He's the one making this happen. And there's another reason that's that's tied up with that. Why is this happening? Look at the end of verse 5. For he has glorified you. There again, we see this completed verb describing something in the future. It's so vivid, it's already happened. God commanded for this one, this coming one, to be glorified. And therefore, when this coming one called to a people he didn't know, they ran to him. So that God could glorify this one. Now what is the point of all this? This second appeal and its explanation. God is saying, listen to me, come to me, trust me, and have a part in my unfolding salvation plan. This promised Savior, the one I've spoken about, he will not just come for other people, he will come for you if you trust in him. Now, who is this promised Savior? It is Jesus, the Son of David, Jesus the Christ. He came not only to redeem his own sheep, but he told his disciples, I must gather sheep who are not of my fold, bring them in, and make them into one flock. Do you want an interest in that Savior? Do you want to be by his side when he comes as commander? Then come to God now. Listen to his words. Believe them. Trust them. And you will live. God has provided a glorified Savior for you who will not only give life to you now, but will bring you into his kingdom forever. So this is God's second astonishing appeal. Listen to the God who saves forever. So come to the God who gives generously. Listen to the God who saves forever. And then number three, our last astonishing appeal in our passage, return to the God who forgives totally. Return to the God who forgives totally. We see this in verses 6 to 7. It says, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The image at the beginning of verse 6 is of searching. Someone is seeking, looking, trying to find someone else. He's calling out the same way that you or I might call out for someone that we're looking for. Where are you? You call out his name. But for whom is this person searching? 
for Yahweh, the I am, the God who keeps covenant. In this way, God entreats his people and us through Isaiah, search for me. Search for me now. Why? I've made myself findable for you. Call upon me now. Why? Because I'm near and I will hear you. Notice the while, the word while though appears twice in verse 6. This situation will not last forever. There will come a time when you're no longer able to find God. When will that be? Well, certainly it will be when you die. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. There won't be a chance to find God after that. But there may also come a time where God allows your heart to be hardened in this life, where God then hides himself from you, and you won't be able to find him. Not that you'll care at that point. You'll be so hardened that you won't even look. But you don't want to get to that point. Nor do you want to get to the point where you've died and not found God. Therefore, Respond to the limited time offer based on what God is doing now. What is God doing now? He's making himself findable for you. It's as the New Testament says, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, quoting the Old Testament actually, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We can't wait any longer. We must trust God now and not risk God turning away. He's here now. He's near now. If you call out to him, he'll hear you. Verse 7 reveals, though, who it is who is to do this searching and this calling out. It's the wicked man. It's the unrighteous man. Now, this is a huge surprise. The, the, the wicked man, when he calls out to God, God will hear him? I could see God hearing a righteous man when he calls out. I mean, after all, righteousness is more aligned with God, but he'll hear the wicked man? Yes, that's exactly what this text says. It's actually those who are wicked, who confess themselves to be wicked and unrighteous, who God says will find him. You know who never finds God? The righteous. That is, the self-righteous. The one who tries to earn God's favor or supposes he's already good enough for God, he never finds God never discovers God. His search fails. And do you know why it fails? Because he never looks. He never calls. He never searches. He doesn't think he needs to. Therefore, God never comes. It's like when Jesus went to his hometown. It's recorded in Mark. Jesus goes to his hometown and he marvels at the people's lack of faith. And he marvels that he healed so few. That always kind of stuck out to me. Was it that the people came and they just didn't believe he could do it and so when he tried to heal them, it just didn't work? No, that wasn't it. Anybody who ever came to Jesus was healed. So why weren't they healed? Because they didn't come. They didn't ask. It's the same thing here. Really, verse 7 is like verse 1. It's only the bankrupt who can receive the bounty. In the same way, it's only those who admit their wickedness, confess it to God, they can receive God's compassion and forgiveness. But the contrite, wicked man not only searches for God and finds him, but he returns to God, as the third line of verse 7 says. And the word for return here, same Hebrew word that means repent. Interchangeable idea. The wicked man, or what does it mean to repent? The text shows us. It means returning to God. It means abandoning. It means the wicked man abandoning his way, his course of life, his pattern of living. He abandons that. He also abandons his thoughts. He forsakes his thoughts, his previous way of thinking, his previous set of values, his previous group of affections. And he goes back to Yahweh. He begins to walk in God's way. He begins thinking with God's thoughts. He lets God inform his thinking. He takes on God's affections. And God's values. Understand this is not a prerequisite to salvation. It is not that the man reforms himself and then calls out to God. No, it's the wicked man who calls. It's not reformed first. But it always, this returning always happens when one calls out to God. It's always part. It always accompanies salvation. 
And notice the result of this calling out and returning. God promises to have compassion on that wicked one, even him. And it says that this, this man will also return to our God. That's really strange. It says, let him return to the Lord, Yahweh, and then two lines later, and to our God. Why this seemingly needless repetition? Well, I do think the possessive pronoun sticks out. Our. Our God. You see, when the wicked man repents, he becomes a part of a community. And what's that community made up of? People who are just like him. Wicked ones who repented and returned to God. God had compassion on them, totally forgave them. And they all became part of the same community. They're all in the same boat. All wicked, all showing compassion. And that's what we are. How could, how could this happen? How could God allow so many wicked ones to be forgiven? Well, it was God's design. Verse 7, the end says, For he will abundantly pardon. That was his purpose, to pardon. It doesn't matter how much sin a person has. It doesn't matter what kind of sins. It doesn't matter how many sinners. God has abundant enough pardon. His compassion is great enough for all of them. For all of you, because that's what we are. It's just like verse 1 again. God's stores are so great. He can give forgiveness to all who come. How is this made possible? Isaiah tells us, the suffering servant. He's the one who stood in the place of sinners, took the wrath of God that they deserved, and gave the sinners his own righteousness. So their sins would be totally paid for, God's justice would be satisfied, and they would be totally holy and righteous. This is for all those who believe in the Son, all those who believe in Jesus. It is Jesus of Nazareth who makes each one of these astonishing appeals possible. And that's why we, as the redeemed wicked, love him. And it's why if you've not yet turned to Jesus, you must do so. The market is still open. Covenant is still available. God is still near. Trust him now while you can. In closing, what we've seen today are three astonishing appeals from our God, our creator, to trust in him, he who works wonders. We are to come to God who gives generously and without cost. We are to listen to the God who saves forever and gives us an interest in the Davidic covenant. And we are to seek the God who forgives totally, way beyond what we could ever have imagined. And considering what God does for his people in salvation, what he does for you if you believe in him, how will he not also freely give you all things? Romans 8, 32. The same God who offers himself so generously in salvation will continue to generously care for you. He will continue to give you life. He will continue to give you joy. So that you, or he will continue to give you provision so that you have no need to fear, no need to be downcast in your troubles. You've been given astounding salvation. God has provided in the past, he's provided now, and he'll provide even more in the future. We know we have an abundance with God. I wish we had time to talk about the rest of the passage, but you see more reasons why God says to trust me. He, just to kind of preview what the rest of it is, what you would see, verses 8 and 9, he talks about how he thinks so differently from us. You say, this could never happen. God says, I don't think like you do. That's why it can happen. Verses 10 to 11, God gives us another reason to believe, and that is, my word is powerful. That is my commanding word. These verses are often quoted to talk about the power of the gospel, and there is an application of that. This is about what the rest of Isaiah says. When God commands something, it happens. And this is what he's commanded. You can believe it. And then verses 12 to 13, why else can you trust? It's all for your joy. God has designed it in his own grace for your joy. You can explore that more later on your own. Let's close in prayer. Our God, you have come to us in a way that we never deserved and can never have expected. So generous, brought us into a covenant, totally forgave our sins. 
and we did not deserve it. Lord God, whatever people are going through right now, whatever my brothers and sisters, friends, those listening, I pray, God, that they would they would not be shaken. They would see how generous you have been and how generous you are in giving life. They would look to your provision, both now and in eternity. For what you've provided is perfect and so gracious. In Jesus' name, amen.